Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Hi, welcome. I'm Danielle Gould. I am the founder of Food Tech Connect and the co-founder of the Food Tech Connect Club. And we are a club dedicated to having meaningful, nuanced conversations about the future of our food system. And we're very excited to be here with you today for Future Food News Review. Lisa, yes. you want to talk us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So we, we created the Future Food News Review because Danielle and I, what we spend a lot of our time doing is compiling our weekly newsletters and reading all this fantastic reporting and coverage of our industry from various different reporters around around the world. And so we really thought it'd be great to to get, you know, get them all together and talk about some of those stories and really dig into their reporting, you know, and how they covered them and why they covered them. And also get other journalists who are reporting on the same space to ask questions, to comment and add to it. And we've been having so much fun with this. We're super grateful for the time that journalists spend with us. Um, I've been having some fantastic nuanced conversations about all these big topics that are going on in food tech, ag tech, and food systems. And so how it works is that each journalist will come up and present an article that they've reported on this month over a couple of minutes, and then we'll have a few minutes of discussion, and then we'll move on. And some of the journalists just come to join in the discussion, and some of them are presenting articles. We do have a chat board, foodtechconnect.club slash chat for discussion, and sometimes people post comments or questions for the journalists on there, so please feel free to do that. I just want to check with the speakers. If you guys could all press the three dots in the top right of your screen and go to audio quality and make it hard. We, I just did that for my, my audio quality, and then that's great for the podcast. We'll be publishing this podcast later on. Great. Before we get started, I just want to introduce everyone. We have first uh, Chloe, who is an editor and leads um, the coverage of food and agriculture at Forbes. We have Kristen Howley with us, who is a restaurant and tech writer and editor. She is the founder of Expedite.News, and you should definitely subscribe she to her newsletter because she does some really excellent reporting. She also writes for Insider, Eater, Food and & Wine, and many more. We have Jen Marson, who is the editor and editor at The Spoon. We have um, Finn, who is a climate and food systems reporter, and she has a newsletter about food systems, climate, and everything connected to them called Thin Inc. We have Sam Silverstein, who is a reporter for Grocery Dive. We have Larissa Zimmeroff, who is a free-range food journalist. She is a new, newly published author. She writes for Business Insider, for Wired, for New York Times, and for many more publications. Errol Schweitzer, who is a contributor to Forbes and also hosts an amazing podcast, The Checkout Podcast. He also was an ex-Whole Foods VP of Grocery. And last but not least, we have Sonali Figueres, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Clean, Asia's leading sustainability and alt-protein impact media platform. So we have a really meaty discussion today. And first, we're going to start with a, a story that has been leading the headlines 
over the last couple of weeks, which is this food system cyber hacking. It started with JBS, but there's been a number of food companies that's come to light that have had there have been hacking. And so there's conversations around what does that mean for our food system? How secure are we? And what does what does consolidation have to do with our cyber hacking? So Chloe, tell us about tell us about what's going on. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm this is a conversation that's been all over TV all over Congress, if you've been covering, been following like political news, essentially, JBS was not the first company to be hacked. Uh, if you guys recall a few weeks before this, the Colonial Pipeline was hacked and there were some energy issues and gas shortage issues. But JBS had this pretty widespread shortage across its U.S. assets for a little bit over a day. They really couldn't do much at all in terms of their production. They were pretty taken out by this. And this is a big deal because, you know, JBS is the world's largest meat packer and they control more than 25% or around 25% or so of the meat assets in this country. So it's a huge part of the market and them and any sort of swing that, you know, a company like JBS and a uh, swing to JBS's production really impacts the entire system because it is so consolidated. The meat packing industry more than 80% is controlled by the four meat packers. And so this is a big deal. We've known this is a big deal. We've talked about this a lot on this podcast review. Um, and, you know, I think it's, I'm really excited to hear folks on this call hop in and, and, and discuss this with, with us because, you know, it's nothing new that, you know, the, the consolidation across our food system is threatening global security. Um, but, you know, I, I think this is just a really s- strong example of how unchecked market power within agribusiness will continue to threaten s- political, global political economies across the board until this power really is addressed. So, you know, JBS, they paid in Bitcoin too, which is wild. So they paid their hackers 11 million, uh, 11, 11, not 11 million, 11, $11 million in Bitcoin. Um, and there's a lot of conversations now around, like, if they did lie originally to the U.S. government in terms of uh, if they were, you know, uh, working with these hackers or not. There's now several investigations happening in Congress. And the kind of big news that's come out since I wrote this article around the JBS cyber hack, you know, shining a spotlight on the biggest risk to big meat being consolidation is that, you know, now a bunch of senators have come out and been pushing Congress and the DOJ to investigate you know, big meatpacker consolidation broadly, you know, just as a response to the cyber attack, in addition to, um, you know, other investigations around the attack exactly, specifically. So, you know, lots to discuss here, but I really think it, it, this was a, a moment where a lot more folks have been really taking a hard look at how much consolidation and concentration skews and creates problematic power dynamics in our food system. Hi, this is Louisa. Yeah, I mean, this has been such a big story. You know, do you, has this happened elsewhere in food? Like, is this the first time there's been like a cyber attack of this in the food system? Just wondering if this is specifically like targeting meat or if it could have happened in any large agribusiness. It's, JBS is the biggest meat packer in the world. So it's definitely the biggest one, but it's by far not the only one. McDonald's actually had a hack several months before this, mainly in Asia, but customer data was impacted. Wendy's has had some some big um, food CPG conglomerates have had some recently as well. In general, um, what we've been hearing, and I unfortunately I'm not 
our cybersecurity expert before, does have like a crazy cybersecurity expert, and he's been helping me with some of this. You know, what we've been hearing is that uh, food and agriculture are really kind of the next industry because it's a major industry, but you know, people really you know haven't looked at it uh, for profit, as we've also talked about on this podcast, but also for their security hasn't really been hasn't really been kind of as up to date as some of the software companies or some of the Silicon Valley or financial companies that um, have been preparing for cyber attacks for as long. So now I think a lot of agriculture companies are expecting to be more at risk and this is very much becoming um, a pressing issue for protection. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that it speaks to like the the slow uh, the slow pace of technology and adoption and digitization of um, yeah of the food supply chain. I mean, hackers are kind of like pirates, right? So they started with, with the banks and financial systems and big tech firms and software firms. And, you know, now they're all kind of <laughs> locked up more, right? So they're now going to the industry, which we all know has just been kind of, for the past few years, really starting to dig into tech and technifying that way. And so what are companies going to do to respond to this? And I guess, you know, there. so we are in the state where we do have all this consolidation, which we've seen, you know, that... Throughout the pandemic, there were a lot of issues, particularly in the meat industry from a, the processing perspective and meat shortages. But this seems like another issue around consolidation. So I guess the fact that these companies already are consolidated, what do they do now in order to protect against this? And what does it mean for from a food security perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'm writing a whole book about like the what do we do now that we've woken up in this past decade of a lot of people thinking that going to farmers markets was enough. Turns out it's really not, right? Like one percent of overall meat consolid of, of of meat is 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 local, right? So much big meat is very much still thriving, and so you know I think this really has to go back to the alternative models and alternative financial systems that need to be better supported on a policy level with carrots and sticks, but also from the business perspective. I do not think that, you know, big meat packers, big meat com- companies are going to be kind of uh, scaling back willingly. Um, and so I think it really has to come from market-driven forces and signals that show how local meat and, and local food systems can be more effective and scale and, and, and have the scale necessary um, to compete with industrialized systems. And, you know, that's, I, I don't want to take up too much time because I know that's like a whole conversation, but, you know, I'm talking about you know, again, and Errol can definitely chime in here, but, uh, you know, I'm talking about food as a commons. I'm talking about uh, food hubs that have collective power to scale properly, revamping farmers markets completely because they're terrible for producers, honestly. Lots of different things, crazy things like producers unions on the, on the, like, uh, the livestock farming side. There's like a crazy, there's a bunch of crazy things that, that could work. And um, I think, honestly, there's a lot of things that have to be worked and, and, and done at the same time to try to get this to happen. I had a question for you, Chloe. How do you, so these consolidation of big meat, but also the hacking, at the same time, you know, it's certainly not, these aren't consolidated industries, but we've got alternative protein, we've got cell-based meat coming up. Um, are, is this sort of thing, should those companies be kind of preparing for the possibility of something like that now? Because especially in the case of cultured meat, that's very dependent on technology to produce in a lot of ways. So how big of an issue should this be for those companies, even if they're not at the stage where there's mass consolidation yet? Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, Tyson has been around for decades, right? It's on its like third billionaire owner at this point. That's very different from a company 
like an upside foods, which, you know, started a decade ago, but started with completely different structural things in place. Now, I don't think that they were expecting this. However, I would be hard, hard pressed to think that uh, they didn't have stronger systems already in place just from starting out in modernity, honestly. But I think they're addressing it and they're looking out for it. And I'm sure there's a huge amount of concern because especially with like how much cellular agriculture could is completely electrified. I mean, you know, we, 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 you know how that can go. Great. Well, thank you so much, Chloe. And it's a story that, that we'll be following and the implications, I'm sure, as there will likely be many more attacks. Next up, we have a story from Sam around retail. And really, you know, there are a couple of, of trends that we've been seeing over the last month. I mean, there are many in, in the retail space, but two that we wanted to talk about today around the labor shortages and cashierless checkout and how they're related and the acceleration of cashierless checkout thanks to the labor shortages. And I know, Sam, you also want to talk about just this growth of instant delivery that's come out of the pandemic. Yeah, I would love to hear what you've been seeing over the last month. So this week, Amazon uh, has made some big news in announcing that its first supermarket under its fresh chain, under its fresh brand, uh, to have cashierless technology is going to be opening tomorrow, actually, in Bellevue, Washington. It's significant because although the fresh chain has been unfolding on, from Amazon since last year, this will be the first store that has what they call just walkout technology. And it literally means that customers can take whatever they want from the shelf and simply put it into their basket and walk out of the store without having to go to a checkout counter or a self-checkout station. The store does have conventional checkout aisles, but the point is people can avoid them if they wish. Now, Amazon has been playing with this for a while now with the Amazon Go and Amazon Go grocery concept. But this store is bigger. It's 16,000 square feet and is really cast as a more of a conventional grocery store. And this is happening uh, as other companies are raising a lot of money for their own cashierless technology. And I should say the technology works by using cameras that monitor where products travel in the store, and they're able to see details on even small items so that no humans need to be involved in the process except for the customer. Uh, I was mentioning lots of money is coming in, so there's another company called Standard Cognition that has also developed uh, this type of technology. Uh, they have brought in now, they're valued at over a billion dollars and brought in $150 million uh, earlier this year. Another company is called Grabango. They're bringing in tens of millions of dollars, and these companies are not alone. This trend is coming against a backdrop, of course, of uh, reports that grocers and other retailers are just having a lot of trouble hiring people right now. It's interesting, the UFCW, the uh, union that represents many grocery workers, has called cashierless technology a uh, threat to good-paying jobs of essential workers. Although Amazon points out that the store they're opening in Washington State this week has hundreds of workers. Even so, there is concern that this type of technology will take away jobs. And of course, we are seeing these reports. Uh, the National Grocers Association very recently called on the Biden administration to try to get people who are not working and collecting unemployment benefits to go back to work. 
they pointed out that they just really can't compete with uh, benefits that are so strong that they give people an incentive uh, perhaps to decide not to work. It's an interesting set of things that are happening at this point with Kroger, Food Lion, Southeastern Grocers, when you name it, the grocers are out there trying to bring people in. Then, of course, you have this technology um, that may, as it grows, take away one of the most important things that workers do in stores, which is check out customers. So an interesting uh, trend that is unfolding, for sure. Great. Errol, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, no, it's a great article, great reporting. You know, the thing with the cashierless technology is in the, you know, the definition, it eliminates cashiers. So cashiers um, in a grocery store take up a significant proportion of the uh, labor overhead. So this is essentially about reducing expenses, reducing margins, and, you know, translating that into additional lower prices. Uh, UFCW is right on in terms of that. You know, this is among the most popular jobs in America. Cashiers are actually the top job in several states, you know, right behind truckers or even ahead of truckers, which obviously, you know, transportation is facing automation issues as well. But the other funny thing about this technology, it actually is labor intensive in another way because it's a completely surveilled environment where all motion is essentially detected and captured by these cameras. If you have a a customer going through the store and they pick something off the shelf and they change their mind, and they put it back somewhere else, a a staff member actually has to go find that stray packaged product and go put it back in its exact same space. So it's actually highly restrictive in terms of the merchandising and the assortment planning. Uh, Completely surveilled, completely, uh, even say, totalitarian, like everything has to be in its proper place because each space is assigned metrics, each space is tracked by the cameras, and if something happens, per se, like you know, a customer bumps into a display and knocks everything down, it's got to be put back into the exact same like spot and uh, and combination that it was before. So I, I think there's probably still a net gain in terms of labor savings for Amazon and the fact that it will be very disruptive to other retailers. But you know, finally, it's a credit card, credit digital based system. So you know, there's a lot of municipalities, a lot of cities that are you know, very concerned of eliminating cash from transactions as well. So I mean, that, that's the other point. Lots of disruptive to the labor, but also actually high maintenance in terms of how to actually operate these stores and whether or not it's viable. So it's interesting, and I'm watching it closely as well. Thank you, Sam and Danielle. Yeah, when, when, you, when you talked about things like potentially falling off the shelves or in the wrong place, my mind instantly went to this like future where then there's a there's a robot that comes along to fix that, and you know there are there are shelf packing um, robots that are shelf packing shelf filling robots that are that are being rolled out. I mean, overall worked in in grocery, Errol and Sam obviously cover this. You know, what, what do you think about automation overall for for groceries? Is that is there is there any positives there? Depends on who, <laughs> you know, if it's about labor savings and reducing overhead and, you know, cutting back on those types of expenses in stores, investors are going to be there very happy. I mean, that's a big selling point for when, you know, what, you know, for instance, watching Kroger do its reporting and how Kroger sells itself to, or Walmart, how, how they sell themselves to investors. NGA has a lot of nerve going around saying, oh, we can't find people to work in these stores. We need robots when, you know, they're one of the groups that's fought back against the uh, $15 uh, living or minimum wage. You know, they don't want to raise wages because a lot of independents don't pay very well, you know, $10, $11 an hour. So, 
you know, I think it depends on who's benefiting. And, you know, this is definitely a technology that's being driven by big capital investors, institutional investors, tech, technology. There's not a clamoring from, obviously, from labor unions or, or grocery workers like, hey, our jobs are so hard, please replace us with robots. I'd add that there are you know, folks in the grocery industry who will point out that workers who do not need to do a function that a robot can handle can be deployed for another purpose. So, for example, I've covered robots that do inventory checking. They roll down the aisles several times a day and literally are able to see everything on the shelf and record or note when something is out of stock and alert a, an employee to, to that fact. What I've heard is that those workers are deployed to more customer-facing functions. So I guess it remains to be seen, for example, will we see totally automated grocery stores come along where there just really don't, there's no need for cashiers at all. And right now you see this hybrid kind of concept where people can walk out without paying. But still, uh, employees are doing all the normal functions that you would see before. And as you pointed out, Errol, uh, they also, at this point, are stocking the shelves, too. So that, that remains there. Yeah, I would be careful with the propaganda whenever you see something saying deployed elsewhere without them being specific, because that means they're, they're using that technology to ratchet back on labor. That's from my experience, particularly when they're saying we're using robots for inventory management, which is, you know, what humans do now. There are stock clerks, and that's their full-time job. And then if you can actually go and find customer service reps in many of these grocery stores, or the fact that most customer service is handled by cashiers. So here we are. We'll have to see how this all unfolds, of course, because as I was saying about the cashierless tech trend, it's really just at the very beginning, uh, but a lot of money is pouring into the technology. We'll have to see how many stores actually decide to deploy it. And as you said, Earl, if workers will find other things to do, or will this ultimately mean that some jobs just go away? I think that we're going to have to see how that unfolds. The other companies besides Amazon that have developed this kind of technology are talking about seeing it grow tremendously in the months and years ahead. And it's worth noting that Amazon sells its technology, which it calls Just Walk Out, to other retailers. There's room for this to really grow and become a disruptive force for, for store workers, for sure. Great. Thank you so much, Sam. Super interesting. And as you say, something definitely to, to watch and see how this, how this expands. So we're going to move on now to talk about alternative proteins. Uh, before we do that, just a reminder that you can post any questions or comments in the chat. And Danielle has, has posted links to the articles that we're talking about, and she'll keep doing that throughout the conversation. So it's foodtechconnect.club forward slash chat. Moving on to Sonali Figueres from Hong Kong, Green Queen Media. There has been a lot going on in alternative protein. I feel like that's just always going to be the case. <laughs> Loads of news, an IPO, um, a comment from a big uh, protein business around the impact of plant-based on that, the cannibalization of their business, uh, and just even more. So can you run us through Sonali? Sure, 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 sure. Thanks so much for having me. I also kind of just want to do a little bit of a shout out to this, this talk, this Clubhouse show. Thanks to this Clubhouse show, I got to connect with someone I've admired for a really long time, and that's Errol. And I was finally able to pin him down for a good 
hour and interview him. And I just published the interview on Green Queen today. If you have time, I really recommend it. Obviously, I don't need to tell any of you that Errol has a wonderful brain and so much experience. And there's so much in the interview. I've already gotten a comment. It's only been up for an hour. And I've already gotten someone writing to me to tell me how much they like it. Yeah, thank you, Danielle and Louisa, for for letting me be part of this and this result to be able to interview Errol. And one of the things that we talked about is cell-based meat because Errol had written a fantastic piece in Forbes where he had asked a lot of questions that I think a lot of maybe alt-protein insiders would prefer that he didn't. Um, and I just, I love that he's asking the right questions. And and we also had a good conversation about regenerative agriculture, which is a term that I now see just in every, almost every story and every press release that comes my way. It, it feels like that's the new sustainability when it comes to agriculture and everyone's using it. Even in fashion, it, it, there it is. And it's interesting. I, I thought some of what he said was really interesting. I don't know if, if, if Errol, you want to comment on some of the stuff in the interview or want to leave that for later, but I definitely recommend it. It's a really, it's a very long and, and good read. And I think that, you know, the important part for me, if I'm, if I'm thinking about the, why this interview matters is it, it's just, we need to be asking more questions. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, even in terms of me at Green Queen and, and we've become, you know, well-known for alternative protein coverage, I think there are people that, you know, probably would rather that we didn't ask so many questions because alternative protein is, is riding a wave and the money is following it. And obviously, you know, you've got the CEO of Cargill that's saying that, you know, alternative protein and plant-based is definitely going to cannibalize our meat business. And it's just, it's everywhere. I mean, even when, when I, I have people who work in banks uh, that I know, and they tell me that now suddenly alternative proteins are part of every portfolio management, you know, panel or discussion or conference, it's definitely become, you know, the sexy thing to talk about. And of course, when you add tech with, with the word food, you get a whole new type of audience and, and people want to be a part of it and, and they see the money behind it. And another story that, that is obviously in the background here is Oatly. So Oatly went, you know, went public. I think they, they were able to kind of justify their, their 10 billion ask. I think the first day they ended up at over 12 billion in Val. They're actually going through, I don't know how much um, this has made headlines in the U.S., but in the U.K., they are in hot water because they have decided to sue a rival small, small, small oat milk company. They're saying that the oat milk company is infringing on copyright. I think the oat milk company used the term OT, um, but not Oatly. And, and I mean, I don't know. Look, I'm not, I'm not throwing Oatly completely under the bus. And I'd like to know more about why they've, they've chosen to go this way. But it does seem like the two packages are very, very different. And let me tell you, like, they, they have just been attacked on, on social media. And actually, they've stopped posting on their social media on Oatly UK. They're just not answering. And of course, this is, it's playing into this, like, this bigger story, right? Oatly was the upstart. It was this 20-year-old success story that's now, you know, in the big leagues because they've IPO'd and now they're one of the big guys and now they're attacking the small guy. And it's just, it makes me think about the, the, bigger, the bigger kind of arcs of storytelling in the food industry, which is alt-protein is the big savior. Like, do we need tech? Like, you know, regenerative agriculture versus alt-protein. Are these two things always 
Do they need to be pitted against each other? And it's just that that's really what I think is coming up a lot more of now. So, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder to stay on top of all the alt protein news because there's so much of it, because I think everybody wants to get in on it. Even the big food companies, they're launching alt protein funds or they're doing alt protein accelerators or they're backing alt protein startups to come and incubate with them. But what does that mean? Like alternative protein was supposed to be a new way to, to produce food. These are some of the questions that Errol asked, and I think they're really important, which is, can we do this? Can we do alt-protein in a way that is not extractive and exploitative? And how does that look? And because the industry is maturing and there's so much so much news and there's now there's two IPOs, not just one IPO, and it's just it's getting <coughs> sexier, but it's also now it's time to get to the to get beyond the, the exciting part and to go to like the nitty gritty. And it's, it's, and I'm, I'm seeing this divide happening between the people that are, you know, very, very pro regenerative agriculture and agroecology and organic and, and kind of soil and, and that side of things versus alternative protein, which is all being lumped together into this like, you know, tech side of things. And I mean, it kind of, you know, goes with the discussion you just had about, you know, about checkouts with no people. Like, what do we do with all the people? And, and, and one of the questions I asked Errol is like, do people actually care? Do consumers really care about ethics and fair labor in their food system? And, and when I look at like what's happened in the world with companies like Deliveroo and, and uh, Food Panda and uh, all the ones in the U.S., it feels like they don't. Because, I mean, we're, we're all very happy to, like, get our food delivered and not really, and, and knowing that the workers are not being paid fairly. So where do we go from here? Like, like what does this equitable food system look like? And, and how do you, you know, even as an editor, like, how do you cover it in a way that's doing justice to the complexities of these issues? Because um, you can't just paint all protein, all alt protein with the same brush. So, yeah, I have more questions today than... And uh, data or, or news, but that's sort of what I've been, what's been on my mind. Finally, first of all, thank you, and think that this, these conversations, we always try to have these nuanced discussions because there is such a lionization that happens oftentimes in in the media of these all protein solutions of being saviors without really a deep dive into issues around labor, agricultural practices actual impact. Um, so appreciate that you are having these conversations and using your platform to do that. And also to all the journalists on here who really try to add that nuance <laughs> conversation. Larissa, you are unmiked and you just published yeah. a book that really does a deep dive into all of this. So yeah. Us. Yeah. Thank you, Danielle. I did a mute. I know I was like, how do I say I want to talk? <laughs> Sonali, I, I love all your questions and it's, you know, why I wrote my book because the excitement and the fervor around food tech is, it's something that I want to put a spotlight on and take a moment, right? Take a beat to, to, to look at everything and think about it and talk through it. Because if we just look at food with the enthusiasm of the past, we've seen that there are mistakes, right? And the JBS, uh, the JBS problems that were that happened, the hack, like that's the kind of stuff that will actually fuel the alternative system, right? That those are the things that will propel it to come to market faster. If we have these sort of end of world kind of dystopian sci-fi, you know, happenings, like if 
I live in California. You know, we're in a drought right now. What if we don't have water? So there's, there's, I think I had a conversation with Kate Crater from Bloomberg on, um, on Monday for my book, Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. And I suggested that we're going to see things happen. Um, maybe the fervor would, would sort of subside a little once we make some climate, we put, plant some flags in the ground and say, this is what we're doing to affect climate change, to work on climate resiliency. And to me, it is a mix of many, many systems, regenerative, alternative um, forms of protein, not every single one. I liked how you said we can't, they can't be painted with the same brush. That was great. I think climate is what is what's going to help us decide a way forward with the different types of foods. And then I think there, there's enough environmental concern that should something deeply concerning happen, it could propel, you know, cultured meat or something else, you know, quicker to the table. But then, you know, I was reading, I've been reading the Alzheimer's drug approval by the FDA very closely, because to me that translates to food, you know, because the FDA and USDA will work together on cultured meat. Do I trust the FDA? How much do I, how much am I certain that they're not going to be pressured by companies and capitalism? More questions than statements, but I think the dialogue is great here. Uh, Larissa, can you talk a little bit more? You just said that you think that climate is going to lead the way. Could you, can you talk a little bit more about that? And then I I also, I think it's really interesting this, do we trust the FDA? And I, I've been following the Alzheimer approval as well. And I also think just a lot of distrust based on vaccines and polarization around vaccines. And so I'm wondering how, how you think that that might play in the adoption of these types of foods. Yeah, I actually think this like spotlight on the FDA right now with the drug approval is going to be good for food because I think that there will no longer be this just this like blanket a given that the FDA is looking out for us, right? I think that it brings to light that, oh, wait, we're not so sure how they're coming to their decisions. So I think, I think the Alzheimer drug, Alzheimer's drug approval could, could be good for like improving what's happening with the future cell meat regulation. It, it is concerning how closely the companies are working with the, with the regulatory agencies. And they're working globally with regulatory agencies. So they are really, you know, a part of it. And are you talking about the, the food companies? Yeah, the, the, the actual startups are working with the FDA right. and USDA and helping to inform their directions. And they're actually working globally with regulators to inform their directions. And, you know, many of the companies look to get former FDA employees working for them, right? So that they know how it all, how it all runs. So it's just something for us to be watching as journalists. You know, it's our job to pull these threads together and point them out. And I think the Alzheimer's drug issue kind of might help us there. As far as climate, I think that as soon as we have some, you know, companies keep coming out with like, in 2030, we're going, we're going to do this. And in 20, you know, 50, we're going to do this, like kind of like 10 to 20 years out. They're making statements that, that they'll be whatever, carbon neutral or various statements. And I think that if we come up, if the government comes out with kind of tighter regulations, more stringent uh, rules, then that may help us decide on, you know, where the food system is going and what, what forms should be uh, 
you know, funded and helped, helped forward. Thank you. And everyone, this is a, a shameless plug for Larissa because she hasn't done it for her new book that just was released, Technically Food, Technically Food, and we will we'll be hopefully doing a, a book club with her on it. Um, Thank you, Danielle. Things? Yeah, of course. Finn, yeah, did you have some something to add to the conversation? Very briefly, because it's just been a fascinating topic and I've been, you know, really interested in this topic for a while and partly because, you know, I sort of straddled two lines, you know, looking at it from, uh, I, I live in Europe, so I can see all these really exciting uh, technology development, but I come from a developing country where things like alternative proteins are like decades down the line and where, you know, livestock still plays a really important role. And I just think it's just really fascinating to see the debate shifting and people starting to ask really difficult questions about it, because I think at one point it was just seen as the silver bullet. And uh, um, a bit of a plug, I'm literally just finishing this article that I'm writing for Louisa, where I was talking to quite a lot of different people and, you know, very similar to what Larissa said, you know, they said, look, everything should be on the table, everything. And it means, you know, regenerative agriculture in the developing world. The term is not regenerative agriculture, it's called agroecology. Very similar, different different aspects, but very similar characteristics on a lot of different elements, but also reducing food waste, just plant as well, not just alternative proteins in this form of cell-based meat, but like just eating more plants and just, just you know, from consumption to processing to transportation to farm gate, the whole value chain. And it was just really interesting that somebody that I interviewed would say, you know, very, very few alternative protein companies actually have really thought of their value chains in the same sense. You know, many of many were just looking at, you know, like this is a replacement for beef on the plate or replacement for chicken or pork and not thinking, hang on a minute, what kind of, you know, protein isolates are, are, are we, you know, basing our crops on? Is that, does it coming from South America, or is it from California? And they're saying, you know, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on those issues and that we really need to keep a lookout for them so that, you know, when they say, oh, you know, our products are going to reduce 94%, you know, use of water by 95% or, you know, less land by 60%, we need to go back to them and say, hang on a minute, how are you calculating this? And, you know, if you're using crops, you know, from, from the Amazon, maybe that's doesn't exactly work so I just think it's it's just fascinating and just to say thank you for for all these amazing discussions can I can I just add on to Thin's point go Um, for it it. yeah sorry sorry to, to jump in again but I think well first of all I love that you brought up the term agroecology because Errol covered that when I asked him about regenerative agriculture and I think what, what it highlights is just how misunderstood a lot of these terms are and how we, we don't even know what we're actually having the discussion about because we don't all agree on definitions. And that's also another issue in the world of alternative protein. But I think what I've realized is one of our roles as journalists in this space is to, that we really need to push these new burgeoning industries. And this goes for alternative protein, but it also goes for things like indoor agriculture, and, you know, robotics in agriculture and everything we're talking about, we need to push for a better, and I use this term knowing it's imperfect, like LCA of each process. Because what what you realize is that it's just the way that social media has co-opted media language. It's like everything's got to be come down to like black and white, single message uh, slogans. 
And what that does is it removes the complexity and it makes us focus only on one thing. So yes, we're removing the beef from the plate, but what does that mean? And nobody wants to have the 360 degree conversation. And this is where we're going to get into trouble, where we're going to just like replace some of the traditional industries with newer ones that are doing similar things. And I think we just really have to keep like what Thin just said and what Larissa is saying as well is we really have to keep pushing all of these companies and all of the experts and all of the associations and just the whole movement to be more globalistic in their thinking, holistic about everything, because it can't just be about the ethics. But but at the same point in time, I don't think we should throw everyone under the bus if they're not addressing every single issue of every single problem, because that's the other, the other side to it is I think we also can't hold alternative protein company companies or indoor ag companies to impossible standards. But I think there's a process of education that needs to happen and we need to get better about asking the other questions like what about the labor? You know, what about the origin of the agricultural ingredient? You know, where does it come from? Who's producing it? It, it it's just it can't just be the end result. And I think that because it's such a new industry, we've all it they've they've just we've let it off the hook for a while because it is exciting to think about, oh, okay, there is a world where we can make delicious food that nourishes us, but it isn't made from animals that are dying. And I think that there is something to be said about that, that mission. Yeah. Thank you so much. I know that we could have this entire discussion dedicated just to Altines, but we are going to move on because we have a number of other stories to get to. Um, talk a lot throughout this conversation already about labor. And there is a, an, a labor revolution that is happening right now that is, you know, it is time. And Errol has done a lot of reporting over the last always, and especially over the last month, on some of the things that are happening right now around gig workers and farm workers. And so would love for you to speak to that and, and what's happening in this labor revolution. I'm not sure I'd use that term, but, you know, I, I definitely see us having some, you know, growing consciousness among, you know, working people around how they're being treated and compensated. And, you know, I, I would even consider like some of this, you know, slowdown or refusal to go back to you know, these really harsh blue collar work conditions. And, you know, the folks that don't know me know that I come out of the grocery trade and I work thousands of hours in stores and warehouses and, and trucks and all that you know, it's brutal work and it doesn't pay well and you don't get treated very well by customers. And many people, you know, make careers out of it because, you know, you, you get into it and you find a community and you develop skills, you develop a trade. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing now is this sort of uh, pushback on that model and the fact that a lot of the vested interests are saying, oh, we, we can't find people to hire. And meanwhile, they're the ones lobbying against increasing wages, increasing, as well as, you know, pushing back against, for instance, ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standard from OSHA, NGA is also behind pushing back against ET ETS, which is you know, giving OSHA more power to fine and regulate you know, workplaces in the food industry. Uh, right now, they're only uh, doing an ETS for the healthcare industry. So you know, grocery workers are essentially still, and all food, food sector workers are essentially still you know, pretty open to you know, infection or um, you know, other safety issues coming out of COVID, including the meat industry, which is subsidized to the tune of $38 billion a year. But we'll get to that again later. So yeah, I, pu I pushed out two articles uh, recently that I'm really trying to position these pieces as, what do the worker 
doing? Like, what are they saying? What are the issues that they're pushing on and how are they positioning solutions to them? Um, and so one of them was super inspiring in New York, uh, Workers' Justice Project, you know, back in April, they did a march of, you know, several thousand delivery workers called Los Deliveristas Unidos, almost all immigrant uh, workers who work for, you know, DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats and, you know, all the apps. And they had been organizing for several years, just building community, building solidarity among these workers. And particularly during COVID, folks were facing like pretty harsh working conditions, you know, you know essentially being relied on to feed the city. No access to bathrooms, though. A lot of assaults, a couple of deaths among these delivery workers, a lot of abuse from customers, and just in general, not being treated well by the apps. And so this organization has partnered with a number of progressive city council people in New York City, put a bill before city council to essentially regulate the apps. It's sort of the opposite of what happened in California, where the apps wrote the law and, and underwrote the campaign of Proposition 22 essentially deregulate the way working people are, are scheduled and compensated under these apps. And it's sort of the opposite in New York, where this group of mostly immigrant delivery workers are saying, hey, we have some ideas. Um, you know, we're not against these apps. You know, we see how important they are to people, but we do think they should be regulated. And we think we should have a say because we're the most familiar with how it actually works, how it actually happens. So this is the notion that like, working people should have a say in the labor process. And that includes making sure that delivery workers have access to bathrooms in restaurants where they're picking food up from, that delivery workers have a say in the distance that they need to travel uh, for these apps, that they have a say in how the gratuity, the tips, and the compensation uh, is divvied up, etc. So I, I see this as a growing trend among delivery workers. Thankfully, in New York, they've got enough progressive uh, municipal politicians to, to get behind some, but we'll see where it goes. But I think it's a good step in the right direction as the apps have changed the economy, but they've attracted a ton of scrutiny, not only about, you know, the way they extract revenue from restaurants and, you know, make a handful of investors and CEOs rich. I mean, the, the CEO of DoorDash is making, what, $400 million a year. I mean, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a Ponzi scheme. And so these delivery workers are saying, hey, we, these apps can't function without us. And let's, let's make some changes so that it works better for us as well. And the other piece that I just posted today was a kind of in-depth study and comparison of fair trade certification among dairy farm workers. And for those of you who don't know, in my previous role at Whole Foods, I probably managed 75 to $100 million a year in fair trade sales among the brands and exclusive store brands that we sold. So, you know, for me, this goes way back. I've been selling fair trade products since 1997. And, you know, the fair trade movement has evolved slash devolved. Like, there, there's definitely a bit of compromise that has been made in order to make fair trade more palatable, more acceptable, particularly to big retailers and big CPG brands. What you see here, once again, are farm workers pushing back on these certifications and wanting more say as, once again, they're the experts in the labor process. But they are also intimately familiar with the abuse, exploitation, fear, you know, deportation that their their friends, family members, community members face in order to feed everyone. And so Dairy Farm Workers, this organization, Migrant Justice up in Vermont, once again, an organization um, of immigrant farm workers, you know, uh, led by immigrant farm workers, many women, has put together a Milk with Dignity platform, which is sort of an alternative to fair trade in that it's a 
worker-driven social certification. Like the workers have designed it. They've partnered with, in this case, Ben and Jerry's to roll it out. And it's based mostly on consumer pressure so that corporate product buyers, like the folks who are buying the, the milk from the farmers, you know, they're contractually obligated to make sure that there's no harassment or exploitation on farms. They have a premium that needs to go down to the farms that is divvied up to the workers. So they're making additional money. And that, you know, this is legally binding. Farm workers essentially are treated as rights holders, similar to how an investor is treated when they invest in a company, as opposed to the sort of vague term of stakeholders. You know, so in fair trade is one of these multi-stakeholder initiatives that asks a lot of opinions of different folks in the supply chain of how to build a certification, but doesn't guarantee rights, especially in protecting the human rights of, of farm workers. So yeah, I just posted this piece in Forbes today. It took, it took almost a month to, to write for me because we, we spent a lot of time with some of the activists and talking with the farm workers and advocates who've been really digging into the certification uh, and you know what the gaps are, including like sort of a gap analysis between Milk with Dignity and the uh, Fair Trade uh, Dairy platform. Once again, these, these articles all sort of revolve around centering the efforts of essential workers, you know, the folks who you know, make it all happen and feed everybody and have really taken it on the chin uh, during COVID-19 and now once again are getting scapegoated for not wanting to go back to shitty jobs that treated them terribly. Check out the Milk with Dignity article in Forbes. Thank you. Any questions? Great. Oh, great. <laughs> Sorry, Louisa was going was gonna to sleep, but it looks like she got um, held up. Errol, thank you so much for all of your coverage of this space. I think, you know, we, we talk about the gig workers, but and Kristen has been really covering what's happening at all of these third-party delivery apps. Um, so wanted to transition to your story, Kristen, on the third-party delivery apps and, and what they're doing for small businesses right now. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, I recently wrote a piece for Eater. It came out a couple of weeks ago. But the gist of it was is that... Uh, that the big, the large third-party delivery companies have been offering slowly um, more products and services and pricing tiers geared toward uh, independent restaurants. And it's kind of like, what, like, are they just a marketing thing? Is this a bottom line thing? Is it really going to move the needle? And I think that the interesting thing is that all of these companies, so basically DoorDash um, introduced a couple months ago tiered pricing, which gives restaurants the option to, independent restaurants, to option to choose different pricing tiers for their service. So they can choose on the low end a 15% uh, in order, well, they can choose if they want to be listed on the DoorDash app, a 15% commission rate uh, that gives them limited marketing support, a limited delivery radius. It's kind of, they call it DoorDash basic. And then there are two further tiers at 25% and 30% commissions um, that offer more marketing support. And when I wrote about it, DoorDash wasn't super excited to talk about adoption. It had only been a couple weeks. Uh, later, there was some coverage in some bigger papers where a DoorDash representative said that the majority, I think, they said the majority of customers are opting, restaurant customers are opting for plans with higher commissions because they want to use DoorDash in order to grow their business. And then at the same time, Grubhub announced a new feature. Grubhub, which is now part of Just Eat Takeaway as of yesterday, the deal after one year, finally closed. So Grubhub is offering independent restaurants this service where they will build them a an ordering website, 
There are many, many services that do this, but now Grubhub will do it uh, for their customers to start and then any business later as they roll it out. That is commission-free ordering for direct orders. And again, this seems in response to much of the negative attention and negative press that these companies have received. And, you know, I think DoorDash is, is pretty has been very clear. It's kind of they do they do a really good job of telling you their intentions in their in their blog posts. But they basically said, look, if you want to see the greatest benefit, you have to pay the most money. And I find that very interesting. And the gist of the eater piece that I wrote was kind of like, who's gonna pay for this? Who's gonna be end up being on the hook for this? And of course it's probably going to end up being the restaurants that have to somehow uh, justify their not even justify. I mean, somehow like make up the difference in in their marketing spend with these big apps. And then one thing I just want to clarify because I've been on this horse for a couple of weeks is that the DoorDash CEO doesn't actually make $400 million a year. The $400 million number that was reported is a one-time stock grant that was given to him in calendar year 2020 that realizes only if DoorDash's stock hits a certain dollar amount over the next seven years. It is his only stock grant as of now, that will be given over the next seven years. And he is not even eligible to start investing until next June, June of 2022. So I just feel like that contact has been missing from a lot of the, you know, the CEO made $400 million in a pandemic year. That's not to say that this man is, and plenty of investors in these companies are not extremely, extremely well compensated. Um, but I think that it's important that there's that, that context there. The TLDR on everything I just said is that big third-party delivery companies are marketing themselves toward independent restaurants as being more friendly to independent restaurants. But I believe that it's a lot of marketing spin and lip service meant to uh, combat much of the negative press and and legislation coming down the pike to rein in these companies' businesses. Kristen, I'm curious to hear from you. And also, Jen, I know you cover this space so much. What do you think this means for the future of delivery? Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask that too. Like, what what does things look like, like five years from now? So I have said, I think I've said it on this this clubhouse before, like, I believe strongly that big delivery companies are for big restaurants, period. And that is, you know, fast food, that large chains, that is the kind of places that can afford to negotiate favorable rates and terms for their agreements. I think coming out of the pandemic, you know, there's great support for the independent restaurant industry from consumers. People are very excited. So I think that I see anecdotally many independent restaurants moving away from reliance on some of these third-party platforms and understanding that they need to create a better solution for themselves that is perhaps more economical for their own long-term growth and sustainability. Um, At the same time, it is larger companies and larger restaurant groups that are really leaning in to delivery partnerships and like co-branding, co-marketing in order to expand their footprints. What's the future? I mean, they're not going away, that's for sure. But I, I just can't imagine after I live in California, after witnessing the Proposition 22 and what happened and the fact that it's nearly impossible to, it's going to be nearly impossible to overturn it. I, I just can't, I can't imagine that these large companies will be reined in, but I do think there will be more options for smaller businesses. I don't know if Jen agrees. Yeah, uh, actually 100%. I think I'm, and I probably fall on the extreme side of, I 
I don't even like to use, personally, I don't even like to use these delivery apps, but I know that's obviously not, that doesn't mean they're going to go away. I think you're absolutely right. I think they're going to be around. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's the McDonald's and the cheesecake factories and the Chipotle's of the world that have all this money that are essentially going to be the big delivery services customer. I think one of the things that that we saw come out of the pandemic with independent restaurants is there is a willingness on the part of these restaurants to get really creative about how they're going to reach their customers. So last year, I had a number of conversations with people who had fine dining restaurants, for example, or more upscale food that just doesn't travel well in a cardboard box. And some of the things that they had come up with as a way to get food to customers, whether it was a finish it at home sort of cross between a meal and a meal kit kind of thing or uh, just other ways to reach customers in terms of those formats. Um, I think they will probably largely go by the wayside for now at least but I do think that what last year has shown us is that uh, there's a lot of options for these other restaurants when it comes to serving customers off-premise. But also, we've seen, we're getting a lot of numbers in now that shows people really want to go back to restaurants now. I mean, I, you all heard, but I heard a lot of folks, you know, talk about the dining room was dying and things like that. I don't think that's in any way, shape, or form true, maybe at McDonald's or something. But I think most people want to go back out to eat and that's going to, you know, just help these restaurants right now. Yeah, it's experience versus convenience at this point. So that's how it's going to continue to grow. It's going to be, do you want the experience of a restaurant? Okay, that's one bucket. Or do you want the convenience of food right now? And that's something different. And those two, those two, things are going to continue moving and op- moving and growing in opposite directions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, Jen, we're going to stick with you for this next one because you reported on a very interesting story about Tesla filing a trademark, uh, trademark under restaurant services. So tell us more. What does it mean? Uh, yes. So uh, this was a couple of weeks ago. Tesla filed a trademark for its brand under restaurant services. And uh, this is actually something that was hinted at a few years ago. Um, I think Elon Musk had left a tweet and they had talked about, you know, we're turning these EV charging, these supercharger stations, uh, putting old school, basically 50s style drive-ins, like with people on roller skates and stuff, uh, at these supercharging stations. And then nothing happened for a few years. And just a couple weeks ago, this filing for the trademark popped up, and it's for categories of uh, restaurant services, pop-up restaurants, self-service, takeout. The obvious kind of takeaway from this is that, well, why that makes perfect sense. Anyone who's ever had to charge an EV while on the road, getting your lunch or something is a good way to pass the time while you do that. There's also Elon Musk's brother, Kimball Musk, is in the restaurant business. So makes me wonder sort of what's the connection there as well. I think what's interesting, and I did not write this article, but I read it and I thought it was an interesting take. I think I believe it was on the the Motley Fool was that uh, Tesla has about 900 supercharging stations in the US right now. And the article pointed out that a lot of these charging stations are already close to commerce and to food and things like that. So 
There wouldn't necessarily be a captive audience were a Tesla restaurant, Tesla 50s joint to go into some of these places. But it did make me wonder if Tesla continues to build out these supercharging stations in, I don't know, I spend a lot of time on the road and I feel like I'm constantly in these kind of gas station McDonald's duo locations in the middle of nowhere. And I'm wondering... You know, is that what this is all sort of headed towards as more EVs get on the road? Will we just see these massive supercharging stations with Tesla branded restaurants? And that's kind of your option if you're, you know, driving a Tesla on a long road trip through not very populated parts of the country. So I think um, I'd be curious to hear what maybe Kristen thinks. I can't honestly decide, to be perfectly honest with you all, if this story is. I don't know. I feel, I feel like we've talked about a lot of really, really important issues in the restaurant industry and in other areas of the food industry about just labor and wages and sustainability and processes and things like that. And so I'd be curious if other folks would want to chime in on where can some of that apply to this situation or does it? I mean, one, one thing I was sort of thinking about is if they are going to have these stations throughout the country you know having lived in the US one of the things that really struck me whenever you're driving anywhere like the options for food are just so terrible it's all junk food you know over here in the UK we're very spoiled we have um, M&S which I don't know if anyone knows uh, M&S Marks they have lovely food they have salad bars like there's lots of healthy kind of options so my immediate thought was well I hope that they you know have reasonably healthy dining options if Tesla does create these restaurants. Well, it does. Yeah, I completely agree. And I I love M&S. I've spent a lot of time in the UK. So that's, uh, you all are totally spoiled. <laughs> um, we, we get Dairy Queen, you get M&S. But, you know, there is Kimball Musk's Square Roots Company, which is a container vertical farming company like it's you know i i could if we're speculating here i could imagine a supercharging chase station with this restaurant and then one of the square roots farms parked in the back you know supplying the restaurant fantastic so it's like local it's super fresh i mean this is yeah that is a nice future to imagine anyone have any other comments i would say too yeah yeah like you can't underestimate the (laughs) the brand loyalty of the Tesla crowd, right? Like, I mean, I am in the Bay Area, um, so I'm in it. But like, man, people get real excited about everything that Elon Musk does, right? And he is nothing if not an opportunist. And his brother is a restaurateur, and his family has a lot of money. You know, what's stopping anything like at this point for the for that company? You know, I I maybe would agree that the coverage of this has been a little like overblown it's like yeah well of course they're going to you know they have a captive audience the people are at their these superchargers you know i've stopped it there's there's one i don't have a tesla but i've been in the parking lot of the supercharger on i-5 between los angeles and san francisco and it's in like the very back corner of a restaurant that's sometimes open and sometimes not you know if it's hot like it is in much of the west right now you're gonna sit in your car and charge and eat your food or I don't know. You know, there's some there's some real brand loyalty there, and it seems to only be getting stronger. Um, and there's obviously a lot of money at that company. Yes, absolutely. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Great story as always. So I think we're going to move on now. Um, and actually, I think Chloe has had to drop off. 
I can pick up this story. So this is in indoor agriculture, so slightly related to what we're talking about with square roots. But one of the biggest uh, indoor agriculture companies out there is called Bowery. Uh, they're based in New York, and they have recently raised the biggest round for a vertical farm group ever. They raised $300 million dollars in Series C funding, and they raised it from Fidelity Management, was one of the lead investors. Then they have um, Google Ventures, GGB Capital, General Catalyst, Tomasek, the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund. They also had some celebrities. You've got Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton, the actor Natalie Portman, uh, Justin Timberlake. So, um, you know, it's quite the crowd. And, you know, I spoke, I've spoken to Irving Fain quite a few times, the CEO. He's, you know, a great, great guy, super emphatic, super impressive and energetic about this space. But, you know, it's been interesting indoor agriculture. I've tracked it for, for years. You know, back in 2016, I know that if we wrote an article about indoor agriculture, it was 100% going to be the best read of the week. This is like kind of a cult following almost around vertical farming. You know, it's exciting. You have LED lighting. It's all done indoors. It's quite geeky. It's, you know, very scientific. You know, and then, but I, but I will say, you know, I think there was a certain amount of hype. You know, there weren't that many container farms. I found out recently that it's about 30 hectares uh, of farming equivalent is in, is in indoor farming. So it's really, really quite small. Or did I mean to say 300? Sorry, I don't want to misspeak. I'll have to just double check that. It's either 30 or 300. But when you think about like the millions of hectares globally, you know, in greenhouses alone, it's 500,000. So such a small amount is actually in vertical farming was when you think about the column inches and the excitement and the exaggeration around a lot of it, you know, it really doesn't match up. But what I will say is that, you know, I feel like we're kind of actually at an inflection point. So if you know the Gartner hype cycle, which is the journey that a lot of technology um, companies often take, where, you know, you have like the expect point of like expectations, then you reach up to the inflated expectations where things are, you know, a bit hyped up. People are thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to stop. This is going to save the world. And then you have this bit where you move down into the trough of disillusionment. And this is all a chart, which I can share with people if you haven't heard of it before. And then you get to what's called the plateau of productivity, where products actually um, end up, you know, doing what they, they say they will do. I think, I'm not sure we ever probably got into a trough of disillusionment for indoor agriculture just because there was such a big uh, fan base around it, you know, and there is obviously so much potential. But there was, you know, certainly a period of time where a lot of these companies were really trying to figure out the business model. We saw quite a few failures in various different, various different parts of, of the US and elsewhere. And I think now we've got to a point where the technology is pretty advanced. You have a lot of robotics and automation, which is solving for a labor shortage and a labor challenge that a lot of the, the companies faced. You have costs coming down for energy, you know, LED lights are constantly being improved and, and becoming less expensive to run. You have companies like one that we um, actually on our investment side have invested in that has got these like grow systems that are doing amazing things with electricity to make it more efficient. So I feel like companies are starting to get to a point where, I don't know, profitable, but they're, you know, they're making a lot of money. And, and Chloe and I have have often joked that Irving at Bowery will never say whether um, it's profitable or not. He says, I didn't say it wasn't profitable, but he never says exactly 
but it just feels like the expansion. You know, they have grown their grocery sales by um, 700% since last January. Uh, IGS, the company I referred to, are going to have three times more growth systems in place from now at the end of the year. You know, you have like sovereign, like you have governments and sovereign wealth funds, com- com- countries have this in their manifestos that they want to dedicate money and resources to vertical farming. It's like a key thing for food security. And obviously with the pandemic, it has shined a light on that. You know, obviously it's, it's another big round. It's a very, very big round. But I do think it, it, it's come at a time where we, we could see quite a significant acceleration vertical farming. Louisa, do you think it's over, do you think it's overhyped though? Honestly, the valuations? Oh, I mean, I'm I mean, I don't know how. Yes. Okay. Valuations. So the valuation is a great point. Yeah. So, I mean, overhyped in terms of it being like a food solution, that certainly was the case. And now I'm feeling like, like this is going to become a very viable extra source of food. Granted, you know, limited categories, although they are growing more and more different types of crops. From like an investment standpoint, an evaluation standpoint, you know, Bowery is now valued at $2.3 billion. And, you know, if you think about, you know, there, and, and you can also think about app harvest as well, which is obviously was in, it was in greenhouses. Uh, right. I can't and remember I, what their valuation was. Is it, is it, I, did you, did you notice that two people from Impossible are now going into Yes. Vertical farming. Yes. So obviously, Dave Lee went to App Harvest, and then now, what's her name? Rachel Conrad is now a consultant or an advisor on one of the big indoor farming companies. Yes, so interesting. Yeah, right. Like, what is that telling moves. you? I mean, they must know stuff. Like they, they've <laughs> yeah, obviously been they on this know? journey with Impossible, and suddenly it's all about indoor farming. I don't know. It just it's really stayed with me. I don't know that any. Maybe I'm just like crazy and and focused on. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I've definitely noticed that. I mean, you know, I like to think it's because they've they've seen that we're kind of at this this inflection point, or you know, they've seen the amount of money that, that the governments want to invest in this. But the, but you're right, the valuations just do seem kind of wild. Like with App Harvest, they listed public exchange at you know over a billion dollar valuation, um, and they had literally just shipped their first crate of tomatoes. You know, so the, when they're going to get to a you know point where the revenues match that. Well, you know, not match that, but get close to that. It's, you know, it seems like a long time frame. And obviously, a lot of it is on what investors think is going to be worth in the future. A lot of it is future forecasting. But yeah, I don't really understand the valuations. If you think about it, right, like total produce, for example, which is like a leading, one of the biggest kind of fresh produce companies in Europe, their revenues last year were $9.7 billion. Right. And they're, exactly. we're talking, they're feeding. Yeah. Like it just, yeah. it doesn't, it's not adding up. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is how often do you have conversations with all these companies about the soil? Because there's a whole movement of of people and it's not just activists, it's experts, doctors, like farmers, researchers that think, that believe that soil is just like a key part of what we need to get what the best stuff out of produce. And a lot of indoor farming is like removing the soil. Yeah, a lot of it is soilless. Is soil. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they will say that their lighting recipes, that the nutrients that they use within the hydroponics can get, sure. um, you know, that nutrition, nutritional, um, you know, elements to their to their crops without the soil. You know, so that well, there, there's always an answer for that. I'm, I, I'm curious. One thing. Jen, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> I was just going to I know you've been doing a lot of coverage of app harvest and looking at the space. So go ahead, Jen. 
Yeah, I think great points made all around. With the the soil thing just makes me think, I think that's a really good example of there is a lot of hype right now. I mean, I absolutely 100% believe indoor farming in its various forms uh, is going to be a future part of the food system. But we don't really have a lot of data on how well this stuff is working beyond what these companies tell us. You know, we are told they're these farms are using less water. We're told they're calculating this recipe for, you know, lighting and nutrients and all this stuff that creates the perfect piece of produce and stuff. But, you know, in terms of just having objective data about that, there really isn't a lot out there. So it's it's very difficult, I think, right now to even say, is the hydroponic method not superior to soil? Do we still need the soil? Um, but what about the fact that, you know, the UN says we've got 60 harvests left in our soil or something like that? Like, I think it's just the industry as a whole is a, part, a major staple in the food conversation now. But I think it's just some of the questions we were talking about with alt protein earlier come up here too. And this is a very nuanced conversation that is really complicated. And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding right now, which is why it's great that we're talking about it to hopefully set some things straight about uh, where this is all going. Yeah. Thank you so Oops. much. I think I think we're going to need to um, to move on, but you know I think absolutely you know there's so much potential for indoor agriculture to be in places where food deserts where soil is not up to scratch, so on. But we let's move on to our last but definitely not least story. And Finn, uh, so happy to have you with us today. I kind of slightly threw this one at you yesterday, <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's a big story. Is that essentially we're going through a big period at the moment of um, global food price inflation. Food prices are going up um, all over the world. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. And yeah, really happy to 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 be joining this. Um, I guess I should have said earlier just now when I interjected that this is my first, the first time I'm joining this this review and it's, it's great and hopefully I can do it, you know, again and again as well. So the world food price is rising. Yeah. So this is based on the UN Food and Agriculture Agency, the FAO, um, Food and Agriculture Organization. What they do is every month they release these, you know, food price index. And essentially what it did is just looking at commodity prices, you know, whether what are the movement of these prices, you know, cereals, vegetable oils, dairy, meat, all that sort of stuff. And they've released their last um, food price index um, uh, uh, early June. And what they have found is that, you know, in May, the prices has, you know, risen in their fastest monthly rate in more than a decade. I mean, the last time they, you know, they, they saw something like this apparently was, was since September 2011. So exactly 10 years ago. And, but more than that, it's not just that this was, you know, the highest level in, in a decade. It is also a 12th consecutive monthly increase. So, you know, prices have been rising and rising and then it's reached this record levels. And of course, there are a few reasons as to why there are some concerns around the fact that perhaps, you know, the, the, the delayed impacts from the COVID-19 that has had an impact on obviously a lot of jobs and people's ability to feed themselves may have had an impact. Um, but there's also increased demand for grains and soybeans in China, as well as a severe drought in Brazil that has had an impact on, on some of these commodity prices. And I think that's just a perfect example of, you know, the climate change, the 
pandemic, you know, which is another risk factor that I guess a year and a half ago, we had no clue that this was going to be the situation that we are in now. All of it having an impact on, on the food that we eat. And I think a lot of us, you know, in this discussion are extremely fortunate to be living in in, in countries or, or cities where we haven't really perhaps um, had, you know, seen this impact firsthand. But I've been talking to a lot of people, you know, back home in Myanmar, which is where I'm from, um, and they're grappling with, you know, COVID-19 commodity prices and political instability. And, the, the, you know, the same issues going in lots of different parts of the world, in Africa, places like Ethiopia, again, grappling with lots of different converging risks and vulnerabilities. And I think it's going to be something that we need to really keep a close look on. Obviously, we, we all know what happened, you know, the last time, 2008, when there was this massive commodity prices and all the political instability that came with it. And that also had an impact on a lot of political systems around the world, even in places where food security is not a big issue. So yeah, it's a it's quite a concerning development. Um, something that I think we need to keep a close eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, interesting how it's going to be, you know, different in different nations for di- for different crops. But you know, it's it's happening for all those staples for for products like tofu and so on. Apparently, the prices are going up, and how some of the companies have been reporting on it. Some of the large uh, large companies like General Mills or, or I was reading something yesterday, you know, they've been kind of just talking about like pricing adjustments, but they haven't you know, been communicating very specifically that prices are going up, which I think is obviously some kind of PR communications way of getting getting around it. Do you, I mean, what do you think, and generally having seen kind of trends like this before, what is kind of a turning point where things could come down again? Like how far can this go? crystal ball question i don't know <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you because i think you know the, the the so where we are in europe and the us right we feel like we're almost turning a corner in terms of talking about the pandemic and you know things opening up again life perhaps going back to normal but there's vast swathes of the world particularly a lot of grain producing countries or food producing countries where you know the pandemic is still raging that will have a lot of, uh, could possibly have a lot of impact, you know, on 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 not just demand, but uh, productivity. And it's just really hard to know, actually, um, which way we will, we will go. I mean, luckily, there were a lot of, so last year when, you know, the, the COVID-19 hit, there was a, lo- a lot of concerns centered around countries becoming very protective and nationalistic and, you know, sort of uh, controlling the exports of grains. Luckily, that has not happened. But I think it's it's just really hard to predict at this point in time, particularly because a few months ago, we thought by this point in time, we'd be back to normal. We still, we're not. And in the UK, where you are, right, you've just um, pushed back the opening by another month because of another variant of COVID-19. I mean, I know we're talking about, you know, food prices and not the pandemic, but I think at this point in time, they're quite intricately linked. And I think that there could be a, there could be a lot more um, instability just because of, of the, the pandemic's impact on not just, you know, people's ability to be uh, afford food or, or commodity prices rising, just just also in terms of what policy policies grain producing countries are going to impose if things get worse. 
yeah so unfortunately i i haven't i haven't got a i haven't got special insights or special answer right right no exactly it's a tricky it's a tricky one and i guess you know the knock-on effects of the pandemic are just again things that we might just not expect or know exactly how they're going to play out on some of the disruptions that happened with various different crops and and foods over the past year I'd be I'd be like so keen to hear other people's thoughts on what they think, you know, how they see this playing out. Anyone have any any thoughts? <laughs> I guess everyone else finds this a tricky topic too. <laughs> well, maybe we can bring this up bring this up another time. I mean, it's it's such a big story, and the the you know ability for people to purchase food is obviously just so important, but it's so complicated. That you know, maybe we need to bring on a you know a commodities ec- economist for another yeah, time to help us yeah. dig into this a bit more. Yeah, somebody who works with all these charts and you know predictions. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Thin, and so great to have you. And definitely love to have you again. So we are thank at you. time now, and thank you, thank you so much to all our journalists and to everyone for listening. Please do follow all the journalists that have been speaking today, and follow us at Food Tonight. Food Tech Connect Club and look out for the podcast of this. We will hope to be back um, next month. So thank you all so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for having us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. You've been at Food with me, Louisa Burwood Taylor. For news and insights on the food and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.